0: Chief People Officer at InMarsat. I mean, obviously, like every business and every person, we've all been affected by lockdown. How's your lockdown been for you? How's it meant for for work and everything? Yeah, it's been really
1: challenging, but I think it's also been full of opportunities as well. So, you know, it's obviously had quite an impact on our business. So a big part of our business is um, linked to the aviation sector, um, which obviously has been incredibly challenging. So part of what we do um, is... Passenger Wi-Fi, effectively, that's one of our growth areas of the business. So effectively um, connecting people when they're in the air. Um, and obviously, because planes haven't been flying, there's been a real impact on our revenue. Um, but other parts of the business have actually done quite well. So you know, it's been quite a, a nice balancing effect overall. Um, but from a people perspective, it's it's been interesting because we were already quite good at working flexibly and working remotely. And I think this just forced us to have much more rapid adoption overnight um, and look at our working practices and actually really sort of question why we used to work the way we worked and how we might want to work differently in the future. So I think there have been some really difficult parts of it, particularly for people who have been experiencing lockdown in quite challenging circumstances. Um, And obviously, there are real concerns around mental health and other things. But there are some opportunities in there as well, which we're really choosing to focus on as we go through the journey.
0: And a lot of people probably won't have heard of In Tell us a little bit about what the company does and and, and how it serves people day to day. So
1: our purpose is enabling the connected world. And basically we are a connectivity provider. And the way we provide that connectivity is through satellites. So we specialize in providing connectivity where it's really difficult to to get connections. So for example, where there isn't a terrestrial connection service. Uh, So a big part of our business is maritime um, because it's very difficult to get your standard kind of terrestrial Wi-Fi at sea. But we also specialise in providing connectivity that's ultra-reliable. So our network is 99.99% reliable, and that means it's really effective for things like government communications. It's also hyper-secure. Um, so that's another reason why some of our biggest customers are governments, because they know they're going through a very secure network. So effectively, it is providing connectivity on the, on the move for people, mobile, connect, mobile connectivity.
0: And obviously you talked about people at the company in some parts being able to work from home, but presumably you know, keeping that overall show on the road in terms of the satellites and and that core operation, did people have to still somehow be getting into work to to keep that going?
1: That's right. So in some of our locations, we've got a small core team who effectively fly the satellites and control the satellites. Um, So what we've obviously had to do is protect those key workers and part of doing that was not allowing anybody else who didn't need to be in the office going into into the premises over time prior to this kind of second wave if you like we did relax that a little bit but we effectively cordoned off um part of the building for only for key workers and the only other people who sort of came back were people who were working at home under really challenging circumstances so you know, we had one of our graduates, for example, who, you know, spent his whole day working on the stairs at home because he flat shared with a number of people um, and shared a bedroom with his girlfriend. So literally the only place for him to work and do conference calls all day was on the stairs, which obviously isn't isn't conducive to to you know physical or mental health. So we had a number of cases like that where we said to people, look, if you are experiencing difficult circumstances, you know, please do come into the office, but we'll obviously limit the number and make sure we're applying all the social distancing rules so that people have a safe environment to come into. But obviously with the second wave, we had to sort of row back from that a little bit. Um, so we're now back at the moment in many of our locations, just the key workers. But in some parts of the world that are a little bit more relaxed now, for example, Australia, things are starting to become a little bit more normal um, with respect to people coming into the office. But I don't think we'll ever go back to... You know the expectation of people being in the office the majority of the time mm. I think our employees just aren't interested in doing that because there are so many benefits to working from home and what we're trying to do now is understand people's working preferences and effectively give them a choice of a number of different options um, and one of the reasons why we're trying to do that is we know what people really miss about being in the office is collaborating with people and just those social moments you know that kind of emotional glue that builds relationships so we're trying to um, recreate that to the extent we can through social platforms, but also having some physical time in the office as well for collaborations and just to get that balance right for people. But one of the things um, I'm sure you will have found this as well, Justine, that you know lockdown has been quite polarising in a number of ways in terms of mm-hmm. people's views on things. So we've got some people saying, "I never want to work from home again." Um, And others saying, why would I ever go into the office? So it's quite a challenge, you know, to, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle, but um, it's quite a challenge trying to create a a new model that actually works for everybody.
0: So we're suddenly plunged into this world of ultra flexible working, really, and uh, probably got to where we might have got in about 10 or even 15 years time, but literally within several months, it it is quite astonishing just how much of a change there's been and, and just how quick. Absolutely,
1: and I'm secretly delighted about that element of it because I've always been um, a massive proponent of flexible working. I think it's so important, but it does need to go hand in hand with having an adult culture. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of organisations, it doesn't work because it can be quite parental and there's that whole kind of parent-child relationship with employees and a real lack of trust and it it just won't work. So it's quite interesting to see organisations with those kind of cultures have had to actually trust people because they've had no option. Um, so I think it has moved us forward immensely, actually.
0: And it's about purpose as well, in a way, because you know, there's lots of different ways to make sure that an organisation can runs really well. You can have a gazillion rules and guidelines that everyone has to follow. Or you can be, be a company in an organisation with purpose where actually people just get what they're meant to be trying to accomplish collectively. And yes. then they can set their own objectives in the sense of they already know what the mission is and that really does a it's more powerful I personally think uh, because you just simply can't set a rule for everything but also I think when it comes to working remotely people really are able to take that responsibility but it does require as you say Natasha the trust and, and and the capacity to to have that trust in people to let them get on with those decisions and and working on their own. It does, absolutely.
1: And I think one of the things we've learned, we've always been quite big on um, employee comms and engagement anyway, but we've really sort of doubled our efforts during lockdown, because when you're not seeing people physically, it can be easy to lose sight of that purpose. Now, we're really lucky. So, one, we're a really exciting organisation in terms of what we do. We put spacecraft in space. You know, you can't get more exciting than that. Um, but we also, in terms of what we do, because we provide connectivity and we do so much in terms of CSR, we're a very purpose-led organisation. So we do things like um, we're first responders in, in the event of humanitarian um, disasters by providing free connectivity, for example. We also, at the moment, we're doing a lot in terms of crew, uh, crew welfare, um, so particularly people in the maritime sector who are at sea for months and months on end sometimes and you know really struggle with connectivity. So how can we help support them um, and support them with their mental health as well. So you know we're an organization that just does a lot of good stuff, which is brilliant. But it's easy to forget that when you're not around your colleagues. So we've been doing a lot in terms of just sharing some of the stories. You know, it's really um, humbling and heartwarming when you meet people who say, you know, in my sat saved my life. You know, I was, I was up a mountain somewhere, I broke my leg, for example, without my sat phone, I wouldn't have been found. And, you know, we constantly hear stories like that, which, you know, just give you goosebumps and make you really proud to work for this company. But it does need reminding, you know, sometimes on a, on a rainy day like this, you know, when you're sitting at home, um, everyone's a bit fed up, I think, at this point. With, at least in the uk with the second wave um, of lockdown so how do we keep telling those stories and and also how do we reach out into the community and get them engaged as well so we do a lot in terms of educational engagement around stem um, particularly working with underprivileged schools um so that we help people understand what's possible for them and, and for and that, their career as well
0: so so that's really important to, to keep doing was, that next i was going to ask you about um the work that you have been doing around social mobility and really extending opportunity to that, that broader talent group, particularly that's in our schools. It's really how we first met, isn't it Natasha, through working on the social mobility pledge. So tell us a little bit about what In is doing, you know, you mentioned the school's work, which I think is really powerful. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's we've had to pivot
1: quite considerably. So we used to do a lot of physical outreach with schools. So we'd bring um, schools into our office, you know, with thousands of school children a year. We do all sorts of STEM um, activities with them, competitions. As, as the children get older, we'd almost do a kind of Dragon's Den type approach to innovation, um, have people come and share their ideas. We have got an extensive group of employees who go out to schools to talk about what we do. And what we've had to do is try and find a way to still meet that need, because it's even more important. And one of the things that keeps me up um, when I think about the virus is this kind of lost generation of, of children who aren't going to have the same experiences that we had. And, you know, going to get work experience is so much more difficult than it's ever been, probably, um, particularly if you don't have that network, you know, that more privileged children have. So what we're doing now is creating um, virtual versions. So we're doing uh, a one week virtual work experience programme and a precursor to that is we're doing something called the MSAT Passport programme. And what this is, is a fit for purpose programme for young people to help them develop employability skills, to learn more about different career paths that they may not um, have any access to. I always think about that adage, you know, you can't be what you can't see. So Mm -hmm. part of what we do is, And show people what's possible but also give them a good solid understanding of our business so the intention of that is over a period of time they earn stamps by attending different online modules and the target age range is about 14 to 18 for that for people who pass that then we're we will provide a one week virtual work experience programme um, and obviously places will need to be reserved for people who have got a real genuine interest in the profession. Um, but what we're doing for that is it's a research based work experience programme, because what we didn't want to do was have people just join and sit on Zoom or WebEx all day mm-hmm. and yep. not learn. So it's got to be something that they're absolutely um. know contributing to and passionate about and then the next step uh, and people don't have to have have done the work experience first is a a three-month virtual internship so this is to work with one part of the really deliver a specific piece of work or research over a three-month period and there'll be paid placements Um, but we're also doing now some online or virtual stem packs for schools so these are educational packs that we're putting together at the moment actually for primary schools and high schools that we can send out electronically to support the STEM curriculum so this is looking at um, obviously science uh, looking at physics space and satellites so we think that's going to be really exciting Um, and we've got a lot of the the, um, material already it's a question of how do we pivot and and adapt what we've got and actually
0: by doing it virtually we can reach many more schools than we, we could have done before and I think what's really interesting is you know we've all hit this terrible pandemic COVID and yet actually out of it As bad as it's been has also come real innovation in areas like this to to sort of understand almost that leveling up matters even more now because of what's happened with our schools but actually moving online you can also then reach a a much wider group of people um and i think i mean just for that technology sector more broadly i mean obviously it's, it's one of those growth sectors de facto of the future. So making it more open to more young people, um, whether it's through the coding programs, hackathons and all the other stuff that you do, that really matters, doesn't it, I guess, Natasha, to make sure you don't end up growing a new sector, as it were, but in a way that is as close to some of the traditional older sectors that we've already got.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, there are a number of really good organisations that are helping companies to come together so tech uk for example does a really good job as you know in in terms of helping to coordinate some of that activity and i think we're now sort of at a point where you know the first few months of the crisis it was very much around survival so we've used a three-phase model that um was written by an academic in our response to the to the crisis so it was survive reset and thrive and it's really helped people sort of understand where we are in relation to our response so the initial survival phase was very much about you know Redesigning what we're going to be doing in the short term, reforecasting our business plans, looking after our people, preserving our operations. So it was, it was, you know, traditional crisis mode, and now we you know we feel like we're in the reset. And I think a lot of organisations are in that place as well. And we've got a little bit more space now to think about how we want to be moving forward and to start planning for that. Whereas I think the first couple of months were just, you know, no one knew how serious it was really, or how long it was going to go on for. And I think now we realize people talk about the new normal, which is you know, a slightly irritating catchphrase that you're hearing everywhere, but it's true. How do we define what that looks like and, and how do we in our personal lives as well um, and in our professional lives and, and for organizations actually use this as a tremendous opportunity to think about being much more intentional about how we live our lives and how we contribute to, to the world at large as well. So and really important that organizations are taking the time to do that at the moment
0: it's just been an incredible time to, as you say, once you've worked out how to do the survive bit of it, to sort of work out what reset you want in the first place, you know, what good looks like. And, you know, it's interesting that for so long there was flexible working in place for companies, but a lot of people didn't take it up. And it turns out that actually it can work very effectively for them in terms of balancing home and work life. And actually in many respects, much prefer it and yet we were all stuck in a bit of a straitjacket weren't we around getting up every day, going into work however we commuted and then you know working for however long and then having to do it all over again the next day and, and come home and and I do think that that you are going to see on a number of levels, not just with employees but businesses more more broadly thinking about how they can do that reset so that they can they can make the most if you'd like of whatever this new normal looks like.
1: Yeah absolutely and and I think it's just made the world of business so much more human um, because we've necessarily been humanized by working in our homes and the the inevitable interruptions by pets and children <laughs> you know my my, um, my youngest seems to just know exactly when I'm doing <laughs> something that's you know talking to a thousand people or something he'll just come and pop his head right <laughs> you know, I'll just pop, pop him on my knee because he'll get bored and, and run away pretty quickly so um, you know it has it has made us more human and I think it's what that has done is really accelerated a trend that was growing anyway around much more authentic leadership and you know the, the sort of the days of um table banging alpha white male leadership have gone uh, and they mm. they have behind us and I think you know people are understanding that we want people to be authentic and human and share you know our own struggles so I'm constantly encouraging our exec to talk about their own um, challenges with lockdown and we're doing a lot of um vlogs across the business with exec talking about you know how they're managing what they're doing what we're finding tricky about it and just opening up that whole discussion around mental health um, and employee well-being so we're spending an enormous amount of time on well-being at the moment um, in a number of different ways we've got lots of different campaigns about resilience and you know telling we've got one at the moment tell us what you appreciated in 2020 Um, and and we're, we're also delivering learning very differently so we've we've been working with a lot of academics who obviously haven't been um you know in residence in universities and got a little bit more time and we've used that as an opportunity to create some really compelling masterclasses so much more just in time you know like one hour long um leadership development rather than going away on training courses and you know the feedback has been fantastic uh, and actually mm-hmm. actually it's it's really good for us as well because we're obviously very cost constrained as all um companies are at the moment And, you know, being able to do that is a lot less expensive. And if you do it thoughtfully, then you can do a lot more of it. So we've really had to rethink how we develop people as well as everything else.
0: I think it's really interesting. And this issue of almost work and home life becoming blurred, I think has been reflected in companies themselves. So the response for many businesses, and I know including in Inmersac, Um, when the lockdown happened was not only what do we need to do to support our employees it was how can we help more widely in local communities and I think in in many respects a lot of companies sort of crossed a rubicon of, of really for the first time properly getting the fact that they are part of a much bigger community and actually there are going to be priorities that those that wider community that wider country has including leveling up that are ones they have to reflect themselves and i think um we've seen that really in terms of just how many businesses have now got engaged with the social mobility pledge which is absolutely fantastic but obviously in was one of those you know well before covid that was already working with us actually on what that best practice looks like how you can genuinely bring it alive how you can extend opportunity and and i think you know you talked about purpose and and that comes through very strongly in in what you're saying now natasha
1: Yeah and and it's so important isn't it because you know we are an extension of our communities and I think you know whilst Covid has brought many challenges it has brought that fact home and I think employees demand it um, you know and and even things like Glassdoor you know being able to leave reviews so publicly now um, about employers and and particularly for the younger generation you know they want to work for a purpose-led organisation that does good and there's a lot of you know mistrust of big bad business still out there although I think I think that's Changing a little bit as organisations are becoming a bit more human, but you know it, it's no longer a nice to have. It's a fundamental part of doing business. And you know if there's one good thing that's this crisis, it's it's having really highlighted that and driven at home. And, and there isn't really a place to hide anymore for for organisations who who don't want to do that. And whilst the labour market may be suppressed, certainly in a number of sectors at the moment, that's not going to be the case forever. And people will vote with their feet. And similarly. Yeah organizations don't allow you know an optimal level of flexibility moving forward I mean you know I think back to my commute which was an hour and 40 minutes each way every day and think what was I doing doing that <laughs> it was normal I thought that was normal I mean I didn't do it every day but um you know most days that's what I did and now I think gosh you know our service used to read and do emails and stuff on the on the train um it,
0: it's kind of a, loss of a waste of time when you think about it <laughs> I think everyone's mentality is in a a really different place but I I wanted to ask you Natasha really about your personal journey I mean obviously you're a woman in a very senior leadership position of a global business and I am going to give you this brilliant name check because it's it's well deserved you know 2018 you are the chief human resources officer of the year for innovation award this is literally worldwide so Really, obviously, in a leadership position, not within, not just within a global business, but also, you know, within the field that you're part of, too. Tell us a little bit about the path that you took on all of this. It would be really good to get a sense of the journey you had and maybe, maybe some of the barriers as well along the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for the name check. I've gone slightly red. I
0: think it's well
1: deserved. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, certainly. So I started off my career actually in the oil and gas sector in commercial. Um, so I worked for BP for, uh, gosh, 12 years, actually, and um, started off as a on their graduate scheme, uh, doing a number of different commercial roles. And at, at that time, as as is the case actually now with most graduate schemes, you did rotations in different parts of the business. And one of the rotations I did was actually in HR. And it was in uh, organisational development. So, you know, how you can make an organisation more progressive, make sure you've got the right capability, that you're structured correctly and, and all of those things. And I found it absolutely fascinating, but I wasn't quite ready um, at that point in my life, I think, to walk away from commercial because that was what I thought was my my first love, if you like. Mm-hmm. I did a bit of a stint there in, in HR and I went back to commercial and then found myself progressing more towards... Uh, the commercial elements that were really people related so one of my roles was um, commercial negotiations which is all about you know working with people in psychology and win-win and all that sort of stuff and less about the models and, and then as you get more senior you've got obviously analysts to support you in all of that spreadsheet stuff which i still find really interesting but you know i was much more engaged um with particularly difficult negotiations was something that i i found really really satisfying particularly when you when you had a bit of a breakthrough so I did, you know, a couple more commercial roles, and then and then firmly decided to to go into into HR and had some amazing opportunities. So one of my roles was a chief of staff to one of the vice presidents at BP for two years, and looking after a five, uh, effectively a five hundred million dollar um, HR transformation program. So he was obviously leading it; I was his right hand person, and it was it was just a phenomenal period of compressed learning. Um, So during my time at BP, I did 11 roles in in 12 years. And I I always, you know, it was quite project focused. I really like that idea of, you know, doing a concrete piece of work and sort of moving on. I'm I'm less interested in in day-to-day sort of turning the handle of of things. It just doesn't appeal to me in the same way. So I then realized probably a career in consulting was probably the next Mm -hmm. step for me to learn a lot. So BP had been absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I was devastated to leave in some ways, but it was the right time. Um, in my career and I thought if I don't leave I'll probably stay forever which wouldn't have been a bad thing but Mm -hmm. I think I would doubt on some of the breadth I've I've got now so I went to join Ernst & Young um, and was there for a few years and then later on to Hay Group and Corn Ferry so spent seven years in consulting and probably worked with got over 30 organisations on their business transformations and HR transformations as well so it was really great experience very intense lots of travel um, but you know, really loved learning about so many different organizations. And one of the things that I did towards the end of that, uh, consulting career was, um, build up, um, whole methodology around HR and what the future of HR looks like and what, what excellent HR could be. So that was very exciting. And then in Mossat was actually one of my clients who I was doing an assessment of, um, of their HR function and my predecessors, a lovely woman, um, was getting ready to retire and then I ended up having conversations with Rupert Pierce our CEO who's fabulous um and Andy Sikawati our chairman who you know is a big supporter of all of this stuff um and it felt like a really good time to go back in house again I felt like I'd learned a lot from a lot of different places and I was ready to almost bring it home to
0: one place um mm-hmm. and so that was having done that consulting you you were ready to sort of go back to more of a practitioner role in a way yeah. um for the long term yep.
1: Yeah, and just apply what I'd learned as well. I mean, I, I loved consulting with a passion. It was brilliant, and met so many fabulous people, and worked with so many people in different organisations, and learned an enormous amount. It's a real accelerated development again, I think. But I did get frustrated with not being able to, you know, see things through sometimes, or mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's always that little bit of a sense of being on the outside as well, and not quite being part of of something. And because I am quite purpose driven and values driven i wanted to have that sense of belonging and feel that what i was doing was going to have a long term impact rather than someone who kind of came in you know gave an assessment of something you know did some work to make it better in many cases but quite often then just moved on to something else so i was very much ready for that and it's probably been the best career decision i've ever made i feel very fortunate every day to be able to to do my job and, and work in such an amazing organization with such brilliant and also really really lovely people so one of the things about Imasat is you know everybody's just really really nice and our culture is we've worked really hard on it but our culture is really positive and supportive um and you know that whole sort of thread of purpose and giving back it feels like it's it's very much in our dna
0: now and we've really i mean the social mobility place team we've really loved working within Massat because of that and it really does come through you know in those quite day-to-day interactions with with you and your team and Natasha, you said you know you're very values driven purpose driven where's that passion for for that purpose driven sort of businesses values and social mobility where's that come from for you do you think you know, I, I, without
1: sounding corny I think I think it was something I was I was born with in some senses. So my mum always jokes about it that, you know, when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, um, when I was very little, it was always something to do with with helping people and wanting to make things better. So yeah. I think I wanted to be a lollipop lady for a long time because I could help <laughs> people across the road. Um but sort of joking aside, that that sort of um desire to want to to make things better and mm. set high standards has, has always been in me. Um, and I feel very lucky that I'm in a place where that's embraced because, you know, the world of business has changed. It was almost like perfect timing because mm-hmm. I, I feel a little bit frustrated. You know, I think as a lot of people do when when you're sort of going through the ranks in your career that I couldn't quite be 100% myself sometimes. And uh, if I could give myself some advice, it would be to my younger self some advice, it would be to be bolder around that mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and, you know, not, not to be afraid to be who you are, although I think the context was was a little bit
0: different than it is now. And so you think that, you know, I mean, this is, it's coming back to this issue, really, I suppose, of diversity, isn't it? That mm. you can be a business that has a range of experiences and very different people. But if you're not able to find a way to get all of the benefit of that diversity, because everyone has to sort of be the company person, then fundamentally you're going to miss out on it, aren't you, as an organisation?
1: You are, and and I think, you know, a lot of the studies show that if you really do embrace diversity, it has a massive impact on the bottom line, but if you don't and you've got a very diverse organisation that you're not... um, working with it can actually have a negative impact on on business performance for for a number of different reasons so i mean we're very lucky i mean we were born out of the united nations um, and we've still got you know a huge amount of ethnic diversity so we've got people from 47 different countries um different nationalities in our workforce which is incredible and that there is that real sense of um of being truly international uh, in our in our mindset and, and our outlook and you know we've worked really hard on other forms of diversity as well so not just social mobility but Particularly around uh, gender um, and LGBT plus as well. So we've got some fantastic networks, really brilliant people leading them. So we made a conscious decision that they should be employee-led networks. It shouldn't be an HR thing, and we'd provide and support and counsel and some budgets. Um, but you know, really, it's up to them to to create what they want the future of MOSSAT to be. So you know, we've got these really thriving networks. Our women's network we did first actually, and it's it's. Or inspiring you know, when you listen to, to some of our amazing um, scientists talking um, about their careers and about MSAT, and, you know, that that's all been kind of, although we have that diversity to some extent, we still don't have enough at senior levels, and I think that's the same with a lot of organisations, either in terms of, you know, ethnicity um, and also gender, but it is something that, that we're working on, um, but to have that level of passion in the organisation from our employees who are, you know, pulling on us to, to be better all the time I think makes a massive difference
0: and do you think I mean final point really that you know in a in a way we, we've seen how we've been able to make progress on gender and actually what it shows is that when you get everybody on board actually you can start to shift the dial there's obviously still a long way to go but I think you can bring those learnings can't you from progress on getting women into more and varied careers and then more senior roles that can be brought to to bear on social mobility you know whether it's looking at BAME young people coming through or you know perhaps white working class kids as well I think we, we can draw on that to really hopefully get further faster on that wider diversity agenda now.
1: Yeah we can absolutely and, you know the, there's a real opportunity to leapfrog as you say you know What's happened with other areas of diversity as well, and that's something that we're, you know, we're constantly looking at. So having our networks interact with each other, you know, what what worked well, what what hasn't worked quite so well. So we've just launched our BAME network, um, and you know, they, they've been working a lot with our women's network, for example, to to really understand, you know, particularly in the early days, how it works, you know, how to set it up really professionally. So it's a proper board; uh, it's not just a group of volunteers, and, and it's run, you know, really, really professionally. And you know, I don't, I don't think the speed at which they they've got themselves there would have happened any anything like as quickly if we hadn't had, you know, other analogs to draw upon. Um, so it, it is really important, and I think now is is such a timely opportunity for organisations to take stock of, of diversity and understand that, you know, COVID has brought with it many difficulties. But this is a real opportunity to to level things up for people um, across all di- all different areas. But it does take really careful thought because it's very easy when you look at the economic impact of COVID, and you know it is disproportionate as we all know, and it's made a lot of our social mobility problems worse. Um, and, and I think that will continue to be the case. And the number of children who are now below the poverty line as a result of you know what's happened to the economy, um, you know, it, it's a it's a real travesty actually. So you know, I would just have a plea to all organisations to say, you know, now's the time you've got to double up on your efforts, because this is when there's the opportunity to make a really massive difference.
0: I think that's a a brilliant way to end. Natasha Dillon of Inmasat, I mean, thank you so much for working with us on the Social Mobility Pledge. We're really proud to have you as one of our partners that we're working with. And it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really lovely to talk to you as always, Justine. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then subscribe to the series or share it with a friend. See you next time.